The reading is taken from Luke chapter 2, reading the first 20 verses. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for, see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favours. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem, and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child laying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Thanks be to God for his word. There we go. Have I mentioned from the front that um, we've been on a church trip to Palestine recently? I may have mentioned this. I did promise I'll stop trading off it at some point, but it's probably going to be after Christmas if I'm honest about it. On our recent church trip to Palestine, we were collected from the airport by a minibus, which was to be our main mode of transport for the next 10 days. We decided that it needed a name. And because it was carrying us on that uh, early evening to Bethlehem in 
it's fair to say quite a bouncy manner, we christened our minibus Little Donkey, and the name stuck as our tenacious beast of burden and its uh, fun driver time and again managed to make progress on roads that would have had most vehicles giving up in disgust. Quite a few times, certainly from the back row of the minibus, we found ourselves singing Little Donkey, and I'm sure you enjoyed singing it with us just now. And I do apologise if I have now planted that song in your head and you're going to find yourself humming it for the rest of the week. But of course, the donkey in the nativity story, despite the fact that we, we do indeed have a little donkey on our nativity tableau in front of us, um, is a later addition to this story. The donkey is not mentioned in the Bible. I don't personally think that matters too much. After all, as my dad often says, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. But it, it does raise the question for us, I think, of the relationship between Luke's gospel and the historical context in which he quite carefully positions uh, his story of the birth of Jesus. Luke goes to some pains to set the birth of the Messiah within this wider context of Roman and Jewish history. And in fact, this isn't just in the birth narrative, right the way through Luke's gospel. Uh, we get lots of um, historical clues dropped into the narrative, more so than uh, any of the other gospel writers. So much so that it has sometimes been suggested that Luke might be a bit of an amateur historian. Now, the problem we have, I think, with his version of the birth of Jesus is that he doesn't get his history all that Right. As far as we know, there was a census in Judea. Uh, it just wasn't empire-wide, as he suggests it was. And the census took place, as Luke suggests, under the governorship of Quirinius. The problem is that we're fairly sure that this census happened in the year 6 AD. And by any dating of the birth of Jesus, that doesn't really correlate with Mary and Joseph making their way to Bethlehem for that reason. However, this is only part of our historical conundrum with our passage for this morning. The other issue is that of Herod the Great, who, according to Matthew's Gospel, was alive at the time of Jesus's birth. But what we know from other correlating sources is that Herod died in 4 BC, so some nine years before the date of the census in Judea under Quirinius. And the thing I think we need to hold on to here is that interesting though such historical background might be, Luke's purpose in telling the story the way he does is not really to set the historical background. He's just borrowing elements of uh, the context in order to make a broader point, because what Luke is trying to do in the way he tells his story is he's trying to contrast the Roman Emperor Augustus, who he name checks, a man who held global, worldwide political power. I mean, you know, the Emperor Augustus was ruler of the known world. And the contrast with that is the seemingly insignificant birth of a child in Bethlehem. 
Luke's story is told the way that it is, historical accuracies and all, to reflect the fact that Jesus was a Galilean from Nazareth. Actually, let's stop and think about that for a minute. A Galilean from Nazareth is a bit like saying he's a Scouser from Newcastle. The politics inherent in saying Jesus is a Galilean from Nazareth is quite strong. But Luke is also trying to show that the birth of this working class northerner in some way speaks to the power that is held by the Emperor Augustus. And Luke suggests that this is the case to fulfil a prophecy from one of the lesser known Old Testament Hebrew Bible prophets, that the ruler of Israel was going to come forth from Bethlehem. So if we were to turn to Micah chapter 5 verse 2, and if you know where Micah is in your Bible, you get two Pharisee points from Simon this week. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem of Rephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. So Luke is telling his story of the birth of Jesus to show that it was the Emperor Augustus of all people who had unwittingly enabled Jesus to be born in the right place by calling this census, thereby demonstrating that the final power belongs to God and not to any human forces at work in the world. In other words, the historical points don't really add up, but the theological and political point is on the money. Jesus is greater than Augustus, the ruler of the known world, is at the service of the one who is coming into being in a birth of a baby in Bethlehem. So the circumstances of the birth of Jesus, the way Luke tells it, point then to the birth of one who will have nowhere to lay his head, born in a borrowed stable, but also indicating that this insignificant child will be a saviour, he will be the Messiah, the Lord, far outshining even the great emperor of Rome. For the time being, however, as we saw in the story, the birth is announced only to humble shepherds. They hear the heavenly host singing an angelic song, which echoes the cry of the seraphim from Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3, heaven and earth are now indeed full of God's glory. Nativity plays and popular culture often cast these angels as female. When, as I'm sure we all know, in the Bible, angels are universally encountered as male messengers from God. No, I think that's fine. I don't think we need to get too hung up on the, the gender of angels. But there is another further possible gender confusion in Luke's nativity story, and this time it goes the other way around. Did you know that in traditional Bedouin societies, it was often the women who looked after the flocks? It is at least possible that these shepherds who were out on the hillside that night who rushed to the scene of the birth of a new baby, could have been women. And of course, 
at the end of Jesus's life, those who remain with him to the very end are women. And the first witness to the resurrected Jesus is also a woman. Add all this to the fact that his mother is a teenager and unmarried, and take it in a context where women were more commonly regarded as property than persons, and a particularly liberating picture of Jesus begins to emerge. This is a Messiah for all people, not just for powerful men. This is not just a Messiah for wise magi from the East, or challenging the king in, in uh, Jerusalem, or even challenging the emperor in Rome. This is a Messiah for all people, shepherds, women, the poor, the powerless. His birth may have been set against a backdrop of emperors, kings and governors, but he will be a Messiah for those whom society devalues. A Messiah for shepherds and refugees, for single parents and frightened fathers, every bit as much as he is a Messiah for the wise, the educated and the prosperous. And the challenge for those of us who follow him is to never lose sight of the one in whom, as St Paul said, there is neither male and female, neither slave nor free, neither foreigner nor native. The message of the Christ child is that in his kingdom all are included and all are welcomed. And so the shepherds are vociferous in their excitement and amazement, and they sing and babble and shout the good news of a Messiah for all people. And they contrast with Mary, who needs to contemplate quietly for a while, keeping her thoughts to herself. Mary treasured all these words, says Luke. After Jesus' birth, there's no song of Magnificat to mirror the song she sang when first told that she was going to have a child as a gift from God. It seems that Mary found no words for such an overwhelming experience as giving birth to the one in whom the favour of God resides. A young woman, pregnant, out of marriage, far from home, giving birth in poverty, facing a long journey with or without a sturdy donkey shortly to become a refugee on the run from a murderous tyrant. Is it any wonder that she ran out of words and her song fell silent for a while? Christmas can be a complicated time for all of us at different points, just as the birth of Jesus was complicated for Mary. For some of us, Christmas is a time of joy as our Lord comes to us in the midst of our happiness and our festivities. But for others, our experience maybe ends up closer to that of Mary as we struggle to find the words to combine reality with hope. Sometimes the coming of Christ is not to a world made easy, but to difficulties and arguments and griefs and conflicts that make up the reality of our lives. But whether we are sad or happy this Christmas, whether we mourn or rejoice, nevertheless it is to us that the Christ child comes. As hope arises again in the midst of despair, as good news breaks into our reality, as God takes human form and comes to the world once again, and as God draws near to us, 
we too draw near to God. We make our own journey to Bethlehem to worship with the shepherds, the one who is the good news of God for all people in all places. Amen. May the blessing of the God who comes to us in Christ and is known to us by his spirit be with us all and give us joy and peace this day, this Advent and evermore. Amen. <laughs>